So this summer, uh, I was uh, in preparation for my teaching at Kuiper College. I was reading a book on the Psalms called uh, The Case for the Psalms by N.T. Wright. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's a great little book on, on just the, you know, the 150 Psalms in the Old Testament. And in the book, he recommended sort of a, a way to read the Psalms in personal devotions and just as a, as a way of worshiping God. And he said, if you, just, if you read five Psalms a day, Read five psalms per day. Many of them are short. Read five psalms a day. Then by the end of the month, 30 days in the month or so, you read through the whole Psalter, 150. And so uh, my wife and I started that practice, and we're on our second run through. And it's a good little thing. I recommend five psalms a day. We're going to look at one of those psalms tonight together. And the psalms is just, it's just a treasure book of just insight and wisdom from God. It's a book that Jesus obviously loved too, and Jesus meditated on a lot because Jesus quoted from the book of Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament. The book of Psalms was originally written as the song book for Israel. It's what they used to worship God. So if you were a faithful Jewish person and you went to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God, and then you were going to sing some songs. This is what you sang. You sang these 150 songs from the Psalter. But just because they're written as songs, don't think that they don't have serious content. Because they do. Uh, I would say that the Psalms touch on every human emotion that we go through. Every circumstance that we experience. I mean, the Psalms talk about joy confusion, anger, injustice, despair. I mean, you name it. And the Psalms isn't afraid to talk about it. What the Psalms do is they, they, they give words to our emotions. They help us express what we're feeling and what we're going through. And even more than that, what the Psalms do is that they end up connecting us to God. And that's why they're so valuable. So tonight, as I said, we're going to look at one of those psalms, and we're going, to, we're going to look at Psalm 22, which is a psalm of despair. Now, despair is deep, it's serious, and it's actually more common than you might think. Despair is a dark place to be, and you see it in the eyes recently of people in, you know, Highland Park, Illinois, or the people from Uvalde, Texas, where those children were tragically killed. But of course, it's not just reserved for those sorts of tragic headline things. But when you look around at our world, we all do, right, sometimes, and we see the ways that the world just seems to be getting darker and darker and more chaos, doesn't that kind of bring some despair sometimes? I don't think any of us are immune from this feeling and emotion of despair. It comes. A lot of personal things that maybe you might be facing, uh, you know, maybe physical problems, and there's something happening in your body that scares you, and you, you don't know what to do, and the, and the pain won't go away, and, and that can bring deep feelings of despair. Or there might be some situation in your job, and it's a burden and anxiety, and you're just in despair about it. Or your finances. 
Or maybe you have a child that's struggling and going through pain and, and you would do anything you could to take that pain away from your child. You know, but you can't. And all those things that we go through, I think, make us sometimes feel a sense of anguish and hopelessness and despair. So what do you do with that? And how do you not just get stuck in that, you know, and just stay there? Well, that's what Psalm 22 is all about. So let's read this together tonight. It's a, it's a bit of a longer psalm, but I, I'm going to tell you that it is just worth every word that we're about to read. So let me ask you to stand tonight and honor God as we read his word uh, together. This is Psalm 22. The author of this psalm is David. So David writes these words. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord. And I can't read it because there's something over the thing. Oh, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me for trouble is near and there was no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from, from the mouth of lions. Thank you for the help. Save me from the horns of the... Thank you. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. 
Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich... All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And that's the word of God. Please sit down. So as I said, David is the author of this psalm, of the words that we just read. And through his experience, and then through these words that David writes, I think God is showing us how to respond in our own despair. And I would say it like this. In times of despair, God invites us to respond with three things. Honesty, hope, and then love for Jesus honesty, and then hope, and then a deep and more sincere love for our Lord Jesus. So first of all, honesty, honesty. So Psalm 22 is a kind of psalm that's called a lament. This is one of those lament psalms. And out of the 150 psalms, I don't know if you knew this, 60 are laments. Now that's got to tell you something, right? I think it tells us that there, this is a common experience that a lot of people go through. 40% of the psalms are lament psalms. And so David is lamenting this very difficult situation that he finds himself in. And look at how he describes it. He says in verse 12, many bulls surround me. Now, obviously, he's not talking about literal animals here. He's talking about strong, powerful Maybe violent people who are out to get him. In verse 13, he says, Roaring lions open their mouths against me. Again, he's talking about vicious people who are attacking him. And then in verse 16, he says, Dogs surround me. And some of you are dog lovers. You're thinking, well, that, okay, that's better. I think that, that, that sounds better. But, but that's not the picture here. Back in the Middle East, dogs were not friendly. They were not man's best friend at all. They were considered wild, dangerous, diseased. They ate garbage from dumps, and they attacked people. And so using these, these three vivid images, bulls and lions and dogs, David is saying he's surrounded by all these people who are trying to drag him down. He's surrounded by circumstances that are weighing on him and creating anxiety and stress, and he's got no place to turn. And he's in despair. Now, he never exactly says, you know, what, what's happening in his life and what the exact circumstances are. Now, we know that there was a time early in David's life when, you know, when he became, you know, before he became king, when King Saul became jealous of David. Remember that? And so he, you know, he tried to, Saul pursued David and tried to kill him. Maybe he's writing about that. 
or much later in his life, after he became king, you know, uh, one of his own sons, Absalom, tried to rise up and take over the kingdom. And Absalom, his own son, pursued David and tried to kill him. I mean, can you imagine being, you know, being pursued by your own son? Maybe David is writing out of the anguish of that experience. Or maybe it's just some other circumstance in his life. Have you ever felt like this? I mean, like this, the way David is talking? I mean, like maybe people have turned against you? Like they, you know, you're the, you know, they decided that you're the bad guy and there's nothing you can say to kind of get out of that and they just kind of point the finger and, and there's nothing you can say to change their mind. Well, that's the kind of situation that David finds himself in. Or maybe it's your job and something's happening at your job or there's difficulty or pressure or some burden and it creates despair. Or again, maybe it's something that's happening in your body and it's turned against you and it's painful and it's chronic. You know, I'm so grateful that God includes stuff like this in the Bible. Aren't you? You know, to make matters worse here, look at the response of David's own people, his fellow Israelites, in verse uh, 7. He said, all those who see me mocked me. They hurled insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. They say, well, let the Lord rescue him. I mean, seems like the people around David have no sympathy at all for what he's going through. M maybe they assume that David deserved what he was getting. It's his own fault. I mean, it kind of reminds me of Job, right, and the friends of Job. And, and they came and they said, well, you must have done something wrong. And, oh, well, you brought it on yourself. That's the kind of response that David was getting from people whose support that he needed the most. They're turning their backs on him, and it's just hard to describe that level of pain. And what makes it even more frustrating and more confusing is that David had a long history with God. I mean, he knew some things about God. Uh, verse 4, he says, Lord, in you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. And so David no doubt knew all about how God had rescued the Israelites from Egypt, parted the Red Sea, provided manna in the wilderness to feed them. I mean, time and time again, God came through for the people of Israel. And David just knew that's the kind of God we have. Why doesn't he do that for me? But it was even more personal. David had known God in a personal way. Verse 9. You brought me out of the womb, says David. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast for, for my birth. I was cast on you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. See, David had personally experienced the closeness and goodness of God all through his life. And that's why right now this is so painful for him as he thinks about it. David is saying, God, I mean, you were always there for your people. You were always there for me. Where are you now in this desperate situation? I need you. And this whole experience seemed to be taking a toll on David physically and even emotionally and spiritually. Verse 14, 
He says, my heart is like wax. I feel it melting within me. I mean, serious question here. Have you ever been so brokenhearted that it physically hurts? Have you? I was just reading about this, and, 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 and scientists have confirmed uh, conclusively that the way that the human body, the way that the human brain reacts to emotional trauma and emotional pain is exactly the same way that it responds to physical pain. You know, I mean, uh, they track brain activity and the same areas light up in your brain when you cut your hand with a knife as when you go through some emotional, uh, painful experience and trauma. Same things are happening in the brain, right? Pain is pain. And it affects us in very similar ways. And David is saying, you know, I lack God's help here. And I feel like I'm being forsaken by God. And it's just so painful, physically, emotionally. It says it feels like my heart is melting away inside of me. I mean, so vivid, isn't it? The heartbreak that David is going through here. And then he cries out in those famous words, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, think of what he's asking here. God, why are you so far away? I've cried out to you all day long. I mean, what do you want from me? I hear nothing from you. At night, I lie in bed. I can't sleep. I cry out to you, and you give me no answer. I mean, I'm starting to wonder if you're even there, God, if you even care, if you're actually even good for anything. I'm starting to think this whole God thing is maybe isn't even worth it. And so we have to ask the obvious question here. Is it okay to talk to God like that? Is this okay? I mean, is it okay to be angry with God? Is it okay to question God? Well, I think that the biblical answer is yes. It's okay. I mean, look at some of the examples of people in the Bible. Abraham. Moses, David, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Job, all of them expressed words like this in anger and doubt and frustration. The Psalms of lament, when you read them, they get pretty raw and honest, and it almost seems blasphemous. But of course, the Psalms of lament are part of the inspired scripture in the Bible, and I think God put them in the Bible to let us know that he knows how we speak when we're hurting. He understands when our feelings overwhelm us and we say desperate things and we say angry things. He understands so much that he put an example of it in Scripture for us to use. If, you, if, you're, if you're upset with God, if you're in despair, if you don't know where to turn or what to say, Say this, God put it in the Bible. He gave us words to express to him when we're feeling depressed and even angry. I think sometimes we grow closer to God by honestly bringing to God all of those unpleasant things, all of that sadness, all those disappointments, the laments, the complaints, even the anger. 
And listen to this. Based on the numerous uh, God-given prayers of complaint and lament that we find in Scripture, it's obvious. It's obvious that God can handle our honesty. He can take it. I had a seminary professor. His name was Fred Bush, and, and he said this. He said, a friend is one with whom you can express the deepest feelings of your heart. He will take from those words what is worth keeping, and with the breath of kindness, he will blow all the rest away. And that's who God is. He can handle it. He's a big boy. He's not going to fall to pieces because we express a few words of anger and disappointment with him. And God is inviting us. In our times of despair, in our times of anguish, he's inviting us to respond with brutal, raw honesty. God says, let me have it. I can take it. Well, not only that, but in those times of despair, a second thing. He's inviting us to respond with hope. With hope. You know, so when you, when you read this psalm, you come to verse 22, and this is kind of the pivot point in the whole psalm. This is where everything in the psalm shifts. So here's Psalm 22, verse 22. It says, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. And for the rest of the psalm, David stops lamenting, and he starts worshiping and expressing hope. And he's choosing to hope because he knows that God will indeed deliver him, that God will come through for him, that God will rescue him. And so from that confidence, David worships. Now listen, when, when David wrote this psalm, you know, he was still in the middle of the mess. I mean, there's no resolution yet here for David. There's no solution. He's right in the middle of it. He's still in anguish. And so this choice to hope was purely an act of faith. Tim Keller gives this illustration. He says, imagine that you're camping and somebody tells you, you know, go in the tent and check and see if there's any German shepherds in there. You know, so you go in the tent, and, you know, it's going to be pretty obvious, right? Either there's a German shepherd in there or there's not, right? But then he says, if someone says to you, hey, go in the tent and see if there are any noceums in there. You know what a noceum is? Right? It's, these, it's these little bugs are so small, right? You can't see them, but when they bite you, you know you're, they're there. So you go in the tent, and you, you, you unzip the tent, and you look inside, and you don't see any noceums. Does that mean they're not in there? Now, see, the problem with no seams is what? Well, you can't see them. That's the thing. And so, just the fact that you can't see them doesn't mean that they're not in there. Here's the point you're in some kind of an anguish situation like David is describing, and somebody says to you, You know, I know God. And I know God is going to do something great and beautiful out of this for you. I know God is going to deliver you. He's going to do something great in your life. And you say, really? Yeah? Because I can't see any way that God is going to do that. I can't see any reason why he would allow this thing in my life. I can't see any way that this could ever be redeemed or any good come out of it. 
And because I can't see it, there must not be any reason for it. You see, what sort of an arrogant thing that is to say, just because I can't see it, just because I can't perceive it, that means God's ways are infinitely higher than ours. Can't he be up to something that we can't quite see and even know about? Yeah, that was Job's problem, right? He couldn't see it either. And God took him for a little tour of the universe and say, look at that, and look at that, and look at that. And Job says, oh, wow, you're bigger than I ever thought. You're up to more than I ever imagined. When David wrote this, he couldn't see any signs of hope. And yet, because of his faith in the character of God, without any outward evidence at all, he chose to be hopeful. And based on that hopefulness, he says, I'm going to worship God. Now, in our times of despair, God invites us, too, to have hope. Hope that God is up to something, that he's working something for the future. And when we believe that, we can worship right now, right here, right in the middle of it at the present time. And so God invites us to have honesty with him. God invites us to put our hope in him, even in the midst of the despair. And then the third thing is that he invites us to respond with love for Jesus. With love for Jesus. This psalm is actually a great example that it has two things. It has two things. It has an immediate context, and it also has an ultimate messianic fulfillment. Does that make sense? And so the immediate context, you know, this, this really is describing that something, you know, that happened in David's life, and, and it's telling us how David responded to what he was going through, what he was feeling, and, and all of that. But in addition... Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as David wrote this, probably in ways that David didn't even realize he was writing, these words were eventually fulfilled in a greater way in Jesus. So after the Roman soldiers pierced the hands and the feet of Jesus on the cross, Matthew 27, 35 says, when they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Kind of rings a bell, doesn't it? In Matthew 27, verse 43, it talks about the response of his own people. So this is his fellow Jewish priests and religious leaders in Israel. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. That sounds familiar, right? And of course, Jesus himself right before he breathed his last on the cross, cried out in Aramaic from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus realized that the words that David had written a thousand years earlier were painfully being fulfilled in him now. And knowing that, and knowing that he did that, should just deepen our love for him. Because what he did when he died on the cross 
know, but David was prophesying about here what Jesus did for us. It was the deepest pain that anybody could have ever experienced and gone through. I have to quote Tim Keller one more time. He said, if after a, a, a Sunday service, one of the members of my church comes up to me and says, you know, I never want to see you again or speak to you. He said, I feel pretty bad. But if today my wife came up to me and said, I never want to see you again or talk to you. Now that's a lot worse. Because the longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the sense of loss. Think about it. This forsakenness, this loss was between father and son who had loved each other from all eternity. Think about Jesus, who was the maker of the world, is now being unmade. Why? Well, because he's experiencing judgment day. He's experiencing the unmitigated wrath of God. And when he said, my God, my God, he asked that question, why have you forsaken me? This is not a rhetorical question. And the answer is that he was forsaken for you. He was forsaken for me. He was forsaken for all of us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should have fallen on us instead fell on him. And knowing that, knowing that when we come to our moments of despair, we have the opportunity to think about the ultimate moment of despair in all of history. Jesus on the cross, what he went through for us, and then just fall more deeply in love with him. Our hardest times in life have the potential to deepen our love for Christ like the good times never can. Some of you might have heard of this name, Andrew Brunson. He was a pastor from North Carolina, became a missionary in Turkey, and kind of quietly pastored a church in Turkey for about 20 years. And then back in 2016, the Turkish government accused him of being a spy. They locked him up in prison, and he wound up staying in prison for three years. He was released finally in 2019. And since his release, he wrote this book. You can see it there, God's Hostage. And it's a good book. I recommend this too. Let me just read a few lines. He said, After a few days in prison, I completely lost the sense of God's presence. God was silent. And he remained silent for two years. I was broken. I lay there alone in my solitary cell. I had great fear, terrible grief. I was weeping, and the thought kept going through my mind. Where are you, God? Why are you so far away? And I opened my mouth as I wept aloud, and I was surprised at what I heard coming out of my mouth. I heard, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. And I thought, here's my victory. Even if you're silent, I love you. Even if you allow my enemy to harm me, I love you. 
You know, there, there are times in life when it is so dark. It is so dark, and it seems like God is so far away. And maybe for some of you sitting here tonight, you might feel like you're in one of those times right now, and you just don't feel the presence of God at all. But here's the thing. Just because you can't feel him doesn't mean that he's not there. Take that moment and remember what you heard tonight. Take that moment and cry out to him honestly. Don't hold back. Tell him what's on your heart. I mean, he already knows what's on your mind. You might as well say it. And if you don't know exactly what to say, look up one of these lament psalms and say that stuff to God. And then choose. Even in the absence of what your eyes can see, choose to believe that because of who God is, he will deliver you. And based on that choice, hope in him. Have hope. And worship God for that hope that you have. And then allow that whole thing to help you understand and appreciate and love our Savior even better. Because he went through the worst kind of anguish for us. So maybe, you know, maybe you just need to take this by faith tonight. And whatever it is that you're going through, I'll tell you this, it's temporary. It's temporary. It will pass. But the love that God has for you is eternal. It's eternal. And you will always have it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you put the words of this psalm in Scripture for us to read, for us to relate to, for us to express our emotions and our own despair to you. Jesus, we're especially thankful that you share that feeling with us and that you spoke these words too from the cross as you were going through the pain and anguish of suffering for our sins. We are so grateful for that. And because of that, it fills us with so much hope. And so we worship you. We worship you tonight and all week long and for the rest of our lives. We are so grateful for Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and for the hope that we have because of him. We do love you, Jesus. We love you, and we want to love you better. Help us, we pray.